you can listen to The Front on your smart speaker every morning. To hear the latest episode, just say, play the news from The Australian. From The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Claire Harvey. It's Wednesday, February 7. Interest rates are staying put for now. That's according to Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock, who says the battle against inflation is far from over. We have made good progress, but there is more work to do. The job's not done. The cash rate will be held at 4.35% until the RBA board meets again in mid-March. The king has cancer. So what happens now? We look back at the royals' history of secrecy and lies about their health and consider the possibilities for Charles's future. To the stunned heart of London and to the whole Commonwealth came the tragic news from Sandringham of the passing of a beloved sovereign, King George VI. Flags were unfurled to fly at half-mast as the nation mourned the untimely death in his sleep of a courageous, good and kindly monarch. When King George VI died on February 6, 1952, the news shocked Britain and the world. It also shocked his 25-year-old daughter, Princess Elizabeth, who had to scramble home from an African tour to become Queen Elizabeth II. Nobody knew the king had terminal lung cancer. Not even the king himself. Richard Ferguson is the Australian's National Chief of Staff. When George VI, his uh, grandfather, had lung cancer, in fact, he had an entire lung removed. The public was never told. Many senior public servants were never told. But when they found what they call structural abnormalities in the lung, they in fact had found very, very serious cancer that would ultimately kill the king. They didn't even tell the king what they had found. So George VI did not know until near the end that he was going to die. They even kept it from him. That is how secret things have been kept in the royal family. Things are kept secret from the royal family themselves. Exactly two years after that date, George's grandson, King Charles III, revealed he too has been diagnosed with cancer and is receiving treatment as an outpatient in London. King Charles is stepping back from public duties while he undergoes treatment for cancer. Buckingham Palace says the monarch remains wholly positive and is sharing his cancer diagnosis to prevent speculation and to raise awareness. It's easy from an Australian perspective to consider the royals as mainly decorative, but the monarch is at the apex of the United Kingdom's constitutional monarchy and, of course, Australia's. That's why the king's health is a matter of public interest. But over this monarchy's 1,200 years of tumult and bloodshed, it's also been a reason for secrecy. When Charles entered hospital for surgery on an enlarged prostate in January, he broke with tradition to go public, revealing the procedure in what the palace said was an attempt to destigmatize the condition. 
But despite his jaunty waves to the waiting crowds, Charles had already been handed his diagnosis of cancer. And on Monday, he began outpatient treatment, likely to be radiotherapy or chemotherapy for that condition. The palace hasn't revealed exactly what kind of cancer this is, or whether it's likely to shorten his life. But the palace said the king was eager to return to his duties as soon as possible. In the last years of her life, Queen Elizabeth II clearly was very ill. She was thin and frail and began to miss engagements in the last year, reportedly staying at home and watching the BBC drama Line of Duty. When did we stop caring about honesty and integrity? If the Queen was ever diagnosed with a serious illness, she never let the public know. Her death certificate recorded old age as the cause of death, but Elizabeth kept working on her famous red boxes of official papers until the very end. She died at 96, still working on her deathbed, and at the foot of the bed was one of those red boxes, which included her completed work and a final personal letter to her son. At the end of her long life, Queen Victoria would disappear from London for months on end to the remote Isle of Wight, where she died in 1901 at the age of 81. Her cause of death was stroke, a cerebral haemorrhage, but she'd been ill for several years, crippled by rheumatism and virtually blinded by cataracts. None of this was shared with Britain. Charles had to wait until he was 74 to finally become king. He's the oldest monarch ever to take the throne. And now, less than a year into his reign, he's had a serious medical diagnosis. Uh, He can't catch a break, can he? No, he can't. And there's a slight irony, um, a sad irony, I suppose, that you wait so long and then it all kind of crumbles in a couple of years. But I mean, there are precedents for this. You know, Edward VII, when he succeeded Victoria after a 60-year reign, he lasted about 10 years. He didn't really have much energy left in him. It was far too late. The monarch who oversaw the creation of the United Kingdom in the 1800 Act of Union and lost the American colonies in the War of Independence was George III, who throughout his life suffered incapacitating mental illness possibly a form of bipolar disorder, memorably captured in the 1994 film The Madness of King George. He must be restrained. I am the king of England! No, sir! You are the patient! His son, George IV, became king in 1820, having served as regent for nine years during his father's last illness, in which he was confined in Windsor Castle. But after having waited so long for George III to die and having essentially been the head of state while George III had gone mad for years and years and years and he was the Prince Regent and he had essentially been the king and then he becomes the king and then he just didn't have it in him anyway and then Wine and Women does him in about 10 years too. So there is a long history of these long reigning, decades long monarchs And then they're followed by their sons who waited too long and it didn't really work out. But there is a long history of kings being very, very ill and it being kept secret. I mean, the most famous one is Henry VI, who became king after Henry V died. His son, Henry VI, inherited the throne in 1421 at the age of nine months. 
he became king when he was a baby, but he was very mentally ill throughout most of his life. And there was a period where after one revolt, he lost the ability to speak. He just didn't speak to anybody. So obviously that had to be kept secret and that led really just powder kegged the um, the Wars of the Roses, which ultimately see Henry VI killed. Queen Anne had a lot of serious health issues. She actually had up to 15 or 17 pregnancies and every single baby died within a couple of months and a lot of them were stillborn. So she was constantly ill and a lot of that had to be hidden away. In the 1500s, in a violent jousting match, Henry VIII was knocked from his horse and appeared to be dead for up to an hour, causing panic among his followers and frantic plans by his rivals to seize the throne. And never mind the fact that he... um was so sick by the end of his life that they had to get things out of him via tubes, etc. It was very, very <laughs> disgusting. And then, of course, you had, you know, a long period at the end of her life where Elizabeth I, at a point where she had no heir, and the heir was going to go to King James of Scotland, where a lot of that had to be hidden too. There are other examples of this, of course. The most famous one is Franklin Roosevelt, was president throughout the Second World War in America with polio and in a wheelchair, and nobody knew. So it gets back to this fact that we just live in a different world. We live in a world where they cannot control information in the way that they could have done even 60 or 70 or 50 years ago. Coming up after the break, what happens if the worst happens? I'm Sarah Lamarquin, Editor-in-Chief of Stella and host of our podcast called Something to Talk About. Every weekend we publish a new episode where you'll hear compelling personalities, strong opinions and thought-provoking conversations. I wanted to be able to do it in my time when I was ready and speak my truth when I was ready. The topic of when do I become a mum, that is in my mind 24-7. Search for Something to Talk About wherever you listen to your podcasts. When a king or queen can't carry out their official duties due to illness or overseas travel, they can appoint senior members of the royal family to keep things ticking along while they're out of action. They're known as councillors of state and they're authorised to perform most, but not all, official duties. They can attend meetings and sign some documents, for example. But the king can't delegate the dissolution of parliament, the appointment of a prime minister or serious Commonwealth matters. According to British law, the sovereign's spouse and the next four people in the line of succession, and who are older than 21, are councillors of state. That means Queen Camilla, King Charles's eldest son, Prince William, and Charles's siblings, Princess Anne, Prince Edward and Prince Andrew, all fit the bill. But Prince Harry is technically out of the running because he doesn't reside in the United Kingdom. In 2022, Princess Anne and Prince Edward were appointed to the role for life through an act of parliament. I confirm that I would be most content should Parliament see fit for the number of people who may be called upon to act as councillors of state to be increased to include my sister and brother, both of whom have previously undertaken this role. Richard, 
There was reports recently that the King has discreetly moved to ensure that neither Harry nor Andrew could actually step up and perform the monarch's duties if he was incapacitated. There were suggestions at the time that he should have gone further and removed them from the Council of State altogether. That's now become very real. Do you think he should have removed Harry and Andrew from that Council of State? I think there's no doubt that Andrew is not fit to be a Council of State. But in terms of Harry, who knows? I mean, if this rapprochement has happened, which is extraordinary and would suggest that this is a very serious cancer, to have Harry back in the fold could be the next thing on the cards. Things are a bit more complicated when a king or queen dies or becomes totally incapacitated. In that case, a regent is appointed if the next in line for the throne is under 18. Charles's heir is his eldest son. So it would be William, Prince of Wales. He is in his early to mid-40s, so he should be fine. But if something were to happen to William, it would go to his three children. So first of all, George, who's about 10, and then Charlotte and Louis, who are basically graduated from being toddlers. So we're going to see a situation where three children could be in line for the throne and you would need a regent. There hasn't been a boy king since Edward VI succeeded Henry VIII, and he died within a couple of years, and that led to the battles between Mary and Elizabeth and all of that. So the question would be, who would be regent? Catherine, Princess of Wales, has obviously been quite ill, so there's questions about her. Would it be Queen Camilla, the step? grandmother who's quite distant from her um, stepsons? Or would it be Prince Harry, which would seem extraordinary and almost impossible? Richard Ferguson is The Australian's National Chief of Staff. The Australian subscribers are the first to know about pretty much everything. Join us at theaustralian.com.au. I'm Felicity Harley and I host Healthy-ish, where we chat to experts, influencers and people in the know from around the globe to arm you with the knowledge to make healthier decisions for your mind, body and soul. I think if we're going to be focusing on health, like sleep is probably the biggest component of that. I I think sleep is the cornerstone. Like choose the harder option because I've never woken up and gone, I regret that run that I went at 4am. I've never done that. Search for Healthy-ish and Extra Healthy-ish wherever you get your podcasts.